Gente, hello and welcome to Kika's Corner. My name is Kika Matos and I am your host on this show. We talk about community, our city and the world, um, but always, 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 we always do it through a social justice lens. Uh, let's get started. Uh, nearly half a century ago, New Haven was at the center of one of the most high-profile contentious political trials of the century the trial of nine Black Panther Party members, including its leader, Bobby Seale. All nine defendants faced charges related to the murder of Alex Rackley, who they believed to be an FBI informant. Uh, the Black Panther Party at the time was four years old. Uh, since its founding in 1966, it was routinely spied on by both local police and the FBI. In Connecticut, the FBI used informants and wiretaps, sending reports regularly to FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover, a man who called the Black Panther Party, quote, the greatest threat to the internal security of the country. Other surveillance was part of Hoover's secret COINTEL pro program, which engaged in illegal activities. Agents were ordered to infiltrate, spy on, disrupt, and malign progressive groups. Uh, the Black Panther uh, Party trials expose many of the FBI's horrifying tactics and cast the agency and its director in a terrible light. Uh, J. Edgar, Edgar Hoover continued as FBI director for two more years until his death in 1972. By the time he died, he was 77 years old and had served as director of the FBI for a whopping 48 years. Uh, this month, Viking published a new biography of J. Edgar Hoover titled G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover and the Making of the American Century. It has been described as the definitive portrait of one of 20th century America's most consequential figures. The book covers Hoover's entire life from birth to death. It also looks at Hoover's role in expanding the power of the federal government as it explores issues of politics, race and governance over the course of the 20th century. Uh, G-Man, I am proud to say, was written by one of our own, uh, Beverly Gage. Beverly is a professor of history and American studies at Yale University. Her scholarship focuses on American politics, government and social movements. Beverly has made it her business to be part of the New Haven community. And for that, we are glad she is with us to talk about her amazing book. And Beverly, welcome to the show. Thanks, Kika. It's great to be here. All right. First question. I really have to get this off my chest. And by the way, for those of you who are on Facebook, here is the amazing book. Um, hold it up to the camera. Um, so the first question uh, for me is why, of all of the people whose biography you could have written, why, why, why did you choose John Edgar Hoover? It's an excellent question. Uh, one that I asked myself many, many times. I first agreed to write this book in 2009. So I worked on it for more than a decade off and on. And that meant that I was living in some very present way with John Edgar Hoover for most of that time. And I think of almost anyone in the history of the 20th century. He is understood to be kind of our greatest villain. Um, and, you know, I certainly felt that way in starting out, and I've kind of come out feeling that way in, in many ways as well. But I thought two things. 
One is that it is really important to understand him because he was such a key influence on almost everything in American politics throughout the 20th century. And then the second is that he is really a great vehicle for studying this grand sweep of the 20th century. There aren't too many figures um, who are there from the 20s through the 70s with their fingers in everything. Um, so he appealed to me in that biographical sense as well. Um, you call the, 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 the title of the book starts off with G-Man. Uh, can you uh, share with our audience what a G-Man, what is a G-Man? G-Man is the nickname that was given to Hoover and then to all of his FBI agents in the 1930s. And it stands for government man. I actually, at a certain moment, wanted to call my book Government Man. Uh, my editor assured me that G-Man was a much better, <laughs> more efficient title. And I think that that is quite correct. But what was interesting to me about the name is that I think it recovers this aspect of Hoover's life that we don't think about as much, which is A, how embedded he was in the government itself and how widely supported he was. He had massive support for most of his career from Republicans, from Democrats, from people in elected politics, from people in the administrative state, um, and that the FBI as we know it today, and in some ways Hoover as a figure, is actually born out of the New Deal. And so we tend to think of him as this reactionary force, this person who really cr crushed the left uh, in the 1960s in particular. Um, but he actually has these roots in a kind of progressive, nonpartisan, New Deal government tradition that was about you know, building the power of the state and of professional government service and of bureaucrats and all of those things. And so it kind of gestured toward that lesser known part of his history as well. And one of the things that, that was striking in the book was uh, your mention of the fact that he um, worked for eight different presidents, both uh, Democrat and Republicans, and he actually never voted. Right. So he was born in Washington, D.C. in 1895, and he died still living there in 1972. Uh, during that whole time, you know, Washington was the federal district and uh, there were basically no voting rights for anyone in the city. So he was born into this family of government servants, and he came of age as a creature of Washington. And that meant both this tradition of government service, but also in the late 19th and early 20th century, you know, a tradition of racism and racial segregation that he carried with him his whole life. But he's a really pure creature of Washington, and he's kind of a pure creature of the part of our government, which actually is most of the government that isn't about elections and democracy, right? It's about kind of career service. Hmm. Um, you describe Hoover in your book as someone who, uh, and I'm going to quote directly from your book, uh, altered the trajectory of American history, turning the FBI into an enforcement arm for his personal vision of national virtue. What exactly was that vision? Hoover, I kind of cast as having been part of two traditions, and one was this tradition of federal power. Um, but ideologically, he was really a devout conservative. So he was extremely conservative on most 
racial issues. He was uh, a devout anti-communist. And really that, I think, was the reigning cause of his life. It was the thing that made everything else make sense. He was a kind of law and order conservative when it came to crime. And he was also this big cultural figure, I think, in ways that people often forget, which is to say, you know, he just produced reams and reams of essays and speeches about the need to go to church and the need for, you know, discipline within families and uh, kind of championing his conservative vision of, uh, of an American way of life. And so since he was our kind of policeman in chief, uh, it meant, and he had control over this big, big bureaucracy, it meant that he could kind of pick and choose who he thought was a danger to the nation. Um, and a lot of that is exactly who you would expect, right? People on the left, racial minorities, civil rights activists, communists, etc. But there were these really interesting moments where he also went after groups on the right. Um, so he launches an anti-lynching campaign in the 40s that doesn't really get anywhere because he can't get anyone to, to, to deliver convictions in kind of mm -hmm. Southern white juries. Uh, he launches a big COINTELPRO campaign against the Klan and against neo-Nazi groups. And in most of those cases, what he thought was that, you know, these are violent and lawless groups who are not only kind of disrupting the existing order, but are kind of thumbing their nose at law enforcement, thumbing their nose at the federal government. And so that was one of the criteria he had applied to, to determine who was dangerous as well. One of the things that really stuck in my craw was the fact that he was part of a campaign to root out um, LGBTQ folks in government. And I think the term he referred to them as was sexual deviates. Uh, yet he, uh, and you, in a very sensitive way, you talk about his longtime partner, Clyde Tolson. What do you make of that? Yeah, so this is one of the great puzzles of Hoover's life, both his professional life and his personal life, which were very closely intertwined. Um, the most important relationship of his life, as you say, was with Clyde Tolson, who was um, someone that he got to know. Uh, they went to the same college, um, not quite at the same time, but Tolson joined the Bureau in 1928 and he and Hoover were pretty inseparable after that. So Tolson went on to become the number two man at the FBI, but he was also Hoover's closest companion, really acted like Hoover's spouse. They vacationed together, they went to dinner parties together, you know, when people would invite Edgar to Something. You always invited Clyde. And so they were this sort of recognized social couple. I think they loved each other. It's a little hard to say what they were doing in the bedroom, but uh, neither one of them ever dated or, as far as I can tell, had sex with, uh, with a woman. Um, and they were each other's primary companions. So on the one hand, you have Hoover sort of having what kind of looks to us like a relatively open, at least social marriage with another man. Uh, on the other hand, the FBI was charged with enforcing what was the policy of the federal government in the 40s and 50s and into the 1960s, which is that anyone who was gay could be drummed out of the federal service. Um, and so Hoover did that both uh, diligently and at times extremely enthusiastically. Um, so the FBI was responsible for, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of investigations of 
homosexuals in the federal government, what was known as the Lavender Scare. Mm. Um, and, uh, and he was also incredibly ruthless at suppressing any suggestion that he himself might be gay. So there are these bizarre stories about, you know, someone at a bakery in Washington who mentions that he heard at a party that this guy said that he thought the director might be queer. Um, and Hoover would actually send FBI agents to track that person down and say, we hear you've been saying very scurrilous things about the director of the FBI, who's the most wonderful and upstanding man in the United States. And how could you dare do that? And the person, of course, says, oh, yes, that was a terrible mistake. I'll never do that again uh, when faced with federal power. Um, Hoover cut his teeth at the FBI with the first Red Scare during World War One, when there was a serious fear of the rise and potential spread of communism. And it was then that he begins to build the architecture for the American uh, system, uh, system of surveillance that targeted political dissidents. Then he becomes head of the FBI in 1935, and he really seems to ramp up his efforts, creating what you describe as a political surveillance force without precedent in American life. And so the result is the persecution of civil rights groups, progressive organizations and leaders, socialists, communists, and radicals, and all with absolute impunity. So my question is, how did he get away with it? And why didn't Congress or the White House intervene? I mean, the presidents generally seem to be really wary of tangling with him. And, you know, even Nixon, who apparently meant to fire him a few times, was a little afraid to do so. Right, it's one of the great questions of Hoover's career, just how did he survive in office for so long? And it's almost unthinkable of anyone uh, having a position of that much power for 48 years. And to some degree, that story was just about kind of being in the right place at the right time. So he happened to be there in the 1920s uh, when all of these experiments were starting. Uh, he, by the time Franklin Roosevelt came along in the 1930s, and he needed, you know, some really good bureaucrat to uh, ramp up the FBI, Hoover was right there and had a decade of experience. Um, and from that point on, you know, the FBI just kind of grew without a lot of pre-planning. Um, so there weren't a lot of measures of formal accountability. Um, and so a lot of the things that we think of as being these accountability mechanisms, congressional committees, mm -hmm. oversight committees, they just didn't exist uh, when Hoover was around. So that's at least part of the answer. But, you know, I think the more troubling answer actually is that uh, Hoover had really widespread support for what he was doing for most of his life. And this is really the one of the points of my book, um, and I sort of uh, have joked with a friend of mine that it's the, it's the uh, actually, we all suck thesis, right? We're just like, if you don't like J. Edgar Hoover, that's one thing, but he actually, in most cases, wasn't a rogue agent. Uh, he actually was pretty widely supported. So if you don't like him, then you're saying something pretty profound about not only the Washington establishment, uh, but the country at large throughout most of these years. Um, so he had lots of support basically, particularly when he was uh, targeting the Communist Party, there were very few people who opposed it. And then, of course, some of what he was doing was, in fact, in secret. Um, and that's one thing you can do with a uh, police organization without a lot of mechanisms of accountability um, is, is do what you want behind the scenes. 
Uh, you're listening to Kika's Corner on WNHH, New Haven's home for community radio, broadcast at 103.5 FM and live streamed at newhavenindependent.org. Uh, you just talked about how beloved he was. And for a long time, I, you, you say in your book, look, if he'd quit earlier, he would have been a great beloved figure. Unfortunately, he, uh, to put it bluntly, you, you are, part of your argument is he overstayed his welcome, right? And <laughs> so then in the 1970s, he really sat, you know, as the, the Cointel Pro, I think, was one of those uh, tactics that seemed to repulse Americans across across the board. It was almost like they their reaction was um, one of almost universal repulsion. Um, uh, and you you describe him as a staunch conservative, but what I found interesting is that his brand of conservatism doesn't seem um, typical to the current brand of conservatism as I see it. So, for example. He wasn't a fan of conspiracy theories. Um, he was very data-driven, right? He was very um, uh, uh, disciplined about data and analysis. Um, and he was also instrumental in the growth of federal agencies and departments. So in many ways, he really helped create a federal government, something that I think modern day conservatives are aghast at and trying to reduce. Um, what would you then describe as his most defining conservative values. I, there, one of the things I love about your book is you got a ton of photos in there and there was a photo of a boss with this giant quote about, I think, Christian values that I found really surprising. There's also the photo of uh, Tolson and Hoover with, I think, I don't know if it's Tolson or Hoover's mom, I can't remember which one, and they're all looking at the camera and I I found that really interesting. But I'm curious to know what your, what your perspective is of about his defining uh, values when it comes to uh, conservatism? Well, the cause of his life really was anti-communism and the struggle against communism. You know, it's what he came to from the moment he entered government service. It's what he's still talking about uh, in the 1970s at the moment of his death. Um, for many periods of American history, of course, anti-communism wasn't necessarily just a conservative proposition. There were lots of liberal anti-communists. There were actually a lot of anti-communists on the left as well. Um, but Hoover's particular brand, I think, is really kind of the key to understanding his worldview. Uh, he both was interested in this from a kind of national security perspective, right? Are the Soviets conducting espionage? Um, but he also understood anti-communism to be this kind of massive existential struggle um, and something that encompassed almost everything in American life. So uh, when he talked about the civil rights movement and why he thought uh, it was such a destabilizing challenge to the American social order, a lot of it was uh, not just about race, but it was about his concerns that uh, the communists were manipulating the civil rights movement, that somehow this was communistic, right? The stuff that you've talked about in terms of his very public religiosity was within this framework of needing to kind of fight this grand struggle against atheistic communism. Um, and so he had all of these different levels on which that became kind of the organizing principle and almost anything uh, could fit into that. But that's really, the, the I think, the center of his conservatism is that very broad anti-communism. But you are absolutely right. And one of the things that I really try to emphasize in the book is that 
for us today, he is a very peculiar figure because he is this kind of crusading right-wing champion in many ways. And yet he also was a real believer, not only in the power of the federal government, but in the ability of the federal government to do good and things like you know, efficiency, the proper running of a bureaucracy, the importance of nonpartisan government service, the importance of facts and truth and law. And he violated those things at certain points. But he also did believe in them. I mean, none of us are perfectly, uh, you know, consistent figures. And Hoover had lots of internal contradictions. But, you know, those were real beliefs. And and he did, at least in part, build the FBI in that tradition. And that combination of things is not something that we that we see a lot on the right anymore. Um, Your book, I found to be um, very measured. Um, you put it all out there, so to speak, but you were really careful not to editorialize. Uh, and in fact, in your introduction, you really explicit. You say, you know, I'm not a fan of Hoover's, but I'm not here to judge him. And, and you say, as to, to quote you specifically, you, you say that the quote unquote, the book is less about judging him than about understanding him and thus understanding ourselves and our national so my question to you is, how were you able to write with so much restraint about somebody who did so many repulsive things? <laughs> and then um, what, what were your takeaways in terms of um, your conclusions about Americans and the nation's overall past? Well, um, I think in some basic way, I just was fascinated by him from start to finish. And uh, so there are, despite what I say in the introduction, there are a lot of judgments in the book, right, that are matters of historical judgment. Um, But I didn't think it was going to be super interesting to write a, you know, J. Edgar Hoover was a very, very bad man book. I mean, that's, you know, there's only so far, nobody wants to read 800 pages of that. I don't know if anyone wants to read 800 pages of this. I'm hoping they do. Um, but that uh, that seemed like kind of a starting point, but not uh, not an ending point. Um, so I think a lot of it is just my own fascination with the kind of dark and strange and contradictory corners of the American past. And that, I guess, kind of gets at your uh, second question, which is, you know, I think that Hoover um, embodies a lot of contradictions that the rest of the nation has embodied at various points. You know, one of the, I think the the, the polls that I mentioned in the introduction that was so telling to me about, you know, kind of what we prefer to think about our past and what our past actually was, was a poll that was taken right after Hoover in 1964 denounced Martin Luther King as the quote, most notorious liar in the country. And they have this kind of famous public confrontation. Um, and in the aftermath of that, there are these national polls done. And it turns out that 50% of Americans think that Hoover was on the right side of that confrontation, just 16% side with King. And then a bunch of people say that they don't know what uh, what to think about all of it. Um, and it's such a radical reversal of, of course, what we would say now, which is the king is the saint and Hoover right. is the villain. Right. And so obviously everyone at the time saw things that way. But of course, that isn't what the history was like. Um, and our national story would be very different if that was in fact uh, our history, but it's, it's simply not. And I think Hoover's a really good 
vehicle for seeing some of those, those darker parts of the American past. Um, word on the street is that um, when you were writing this book, you had a cushion um, with Hoover's face on it. <laughs> fact or fiction? And did you ever punch it? Uh, it is fact. That was a gift to me from one of my undergraduate advisees, so who finished uh, his senior essay with me. And as, as I recall, I think that particular advisee handed in his senior essay late. <laughs> was feeling ah. bad about hence the uh, hence the arrival of the of the Hoover pillow. I think that I'm remembering that correctly. Um, uh, no, I did not actually ever punch it, but I did find at times that I had to hide it, like put it away, that I didn't want him looking at me. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you've seen the final version of the book. I think you have the galley there that you were holding up, but the uh, the final printed version of the book has that portrait of Hoover, uh, which has half of his face, but the second half of his face wraps around on the um, the spine of the book so that when you put him on your bookshelf, he's going to be staring out staring at you. from wow. the bookshelf, right? So other people may also find that they need to, you know, put him that aside uh, on occasion. Very clever. Um, he lived in your head for over a decade. Um, and you noted that the book is... Um, with the notes, it's 800 pages. It's so well written. It's really, I find it really easy to read and very fascinating. But how does it feel to not have to think or read or write about him after him being a tenant in your in your head um, and your office and your house for so long? Well, the first thing it feels like is a great relief. <laughs> Um, but there is also a kind of loss to it, uh, which is to say that uh, it is a funny kind of intimate relationship that a biographer has with, uh, with a biographer's subject. And um, it is true that I kind of was in the rhythms of it. And when you work on something that long, of course, though this is um, quite a long book, there's lots of stuff that's not in there that I found. And so, you know, the historian and biographer is always living with what was left out as well as what was put in. Um, and so uh, I kind of wonder what's going to happen to all of that material as well, because I really don't want to keep writing about it. You know? I want to move on to other things for sure. Yeah, um, I, I, I saw, I think it is at the beginning that you say, I, I could actually write books about who were based on just the ama amazing amount of, I mean, the of of uh, data and information that you gathered. I know they were. Uh, this is, as I understand it, the first biography of Hoover written in three decades. And one of the things that people keep elevating is just the amazing amount of access to information that you had, including fascinatingly, the the um, letter the FBI wrote to Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, suggesting that he kill himself and uh, under the guise of a, of a disappointed, um, I think it was a congregant of, of, of his. Um, so I, I, I was just curious to know, what does one do with all of the information that you have gathered after you've, you've written this book? Yeah, to some degree, I think you just let it sit um, and see what sticks with you um, mm -hmm. and what kind of retreats into the background. I'm also hoping that 
once this book is published, you know, other people who are doing research on more particular cases, et cetera, that, um, that they will get in touch and I will be able to kind of provide them with, with what I collected. I, I did at some point have some very grandiose idea that I was going to you know, build a site and put all the document. And that, 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 that takes a lot of time and effort. So we'll see if that ever comes together. Um, but all research really is a collective enterprise. I benefited hugely. And you know, a lot of those records that you mentioned are not records that I got through FOIA. Sometimes they are, but uh, quite often they are uh, just releases that have been made by government agencies at great cost and effort. Often they are um, things that have been gotten by other researchers who have you know, made them available in the world. Um, and that's just of huge value. So I, I want to be able to do that too. I am curious to get your take on um, the current FBI. I think uh, over the last few years, it's it's shown its its best and its worst, right? After the murder of George Floyd, it um, you know did what J. Edgar Hoover uh, perfected, which is the art of surveillance on so-called dissidents, you know, social justice act advocates, um, civil rights leaders, racial justice leaders. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, during the Trump years, I think the FBI appeared to have, um, you know, to, to have the, um, a lot of people placed hope on the FBI's ability to protect the nation from sliding into uh, authoritarianism. Um, and I'm wondering what you make of that and whether you think um, the FBI has advanced American democracy in any way. One of the things that's been really fascinating to me over the course of the Trump years is to, and I actually just was, was writing an essay about this, um, are all the kind of liberals and leftists, and I get a lot of it because I said that I was writing about Hoover, who suddenly, after years and years of you know, mostly thinking about the FBI as a force of repression, uh, now uh, kind of pinned a lot of their hopes on the FBI and its ability to kind of, you know, withstand the political winds of the Trump years, to remain loyal to a kind of objective investigation, to ferret out the facts, all of these pieces. Um, and if you look at public opinion polls, it really has been a dramatic shift. You know, 20 years ago, the FBI was far more popular among Republicans. Um, and today it is dramatically more popular among Democrats and uh, Republicans you know, are delivering some of the same critiques that leftists and liberals once delivered, which is that it's this overweening force prone to abuse, um, et cetera, et cetera. So that shift has been really interesting to me. Um, on the other hand, as you point out, we really do see points of continuity. I mean, I think the FBI is a more constrained force you know, institutionally, there are just more mechanisms of accountability. The FBI director is not nearly as powerful as he was during the Hoover years. And so I think the FBI uh, is a more constrained force, but there are certain practices uh, that remain very ingrained, right? And political surveillance, questions about what the boundaries of political surveillance ought to be um, are very present with us, not only, as you say, in, in terms of surveillance of uh, Black Lives Matter groups, all of that, but also, you know, in lots of calls now for the FBI to be more aggressive, less aggressive in going after right-wing extremism. 
Uh, you've been getting uh, really good uh, buzz around this book, and I just want to lift up um, uh, two recent reviews. The New Yorker described it as crisply written, prodigiously researched, and frequently astonishing, uh, a frequently astonishing new biography. The Washington Post called it brilliant and um, a brilliant and masterful account of the life and controversial career of, of director J. Edgar Hoover. How does that feel after 10 years? I mean, I could even, if I were you, I would have been freaking out thinking, oh my God, how is this book gonna be received? But how does that feel? Well, I was freaking out saying, how will this book be received? But, you know, one of the hard things I think about working on a project like this for so long is that question of, you know, kind of, is it going to be worth it? And there are lots of ways of thinking about that. Um, but one of them certainly is, you know, is anyone going to read it? Is anyone going to like it? And is anyone going to kind of recognize the amount, the amount of work that goes into something like this? So it's super gratifying to uh, to see that starting to happen, and it's really kind of a kind of a thrill. You know, I think the other question, uh, just in doing a work of this sort, is that we live so much in a world that is about fast, fast, fast things, right? Tweets, comments, and and so it's a really strange thing to do something like to produce something this long and <laughs> to spend a decade of your life on it. And so I think the other question for me has, has always been, you know, does this kind of project really have a place in the world anymore? Um, and so beyond my own pleasure at, you know, having people say, say nice and really lovely things about uh, the work and its significance, I think it's also reassuring to see that maybe there's there really is still a place in in the world for uh, for this and not just for tweeting, which I do a little of, but not very much. From my perspective, I I think it's a must read for social justice advocates. There's a lot to be learned um, from reading uh, this book, and I'm actually going to uh, really share some encourage uh, people in the movement to read this book, and at the very least, certain uh, chapters of the book to really. Um, uh, deepen uh, the work, uh, th the work that we do. Um, I, I am so sad to say that we are coming to the end of the show. Uh, and uh, Bev, as I as I warned you, uh, now is the time to get personal. So, are you ready? Okay, I don't know if I am or not, but I guess we'll find <laughs> out. <laughs> uh, as a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? Oh, let's see. I'm not sure I had super specific ambitions, but I was actually a classical music kid. Um, so I played a lot of piano and a lot of violin. And I think a lot of other people assumed that that's what I would be doing when I grew up. I'm not sure I was all that committed to it ever. But it's funny because I have found lots of points of resonance that did train me very well to kind of memorize things, to perform, to sustain these kind of long, complicated projects. In that case, learning a long, complicated symphony and wondering, like, is this worth it in the world? <laughs> Does anyone care about these things? Um, but uh, but I think a lot of the energies and a lot of the habits that I learned through that actually served me pretty well. Do you still play? Uh, not really, no. <laughs> Although I did just bring my childhood piano to, to my house a few days ago. So we'll see, it might start up again. Hmm. Um, if you had to describe yourself using three words, what would they be? Hmm. Uh, curious. Uh, anxious. 
Um, and uh, I guess open to new experiences, if that's a word, and if it's not a repetition of, of, of curious. It's, uh, we'll, we'll say historically minded, since I'm a and by the way, I love. A, I'm looking at the posters in the in the back of your house. They're very cool. I see the FBI My FBI posters. <laughs> like, yeah. Yes, your FBI <laughs> posters. Um, okay, the last question: If they made a movie um, about your life, what would it be about, and which actor would you want to play you? Hmm, this is a really good one. Um, what would it be about? Uh, I guess in the in the end, it would probably have to be about um, the relationship between the present and the past. So I would envision something that is a kind of interweaving of, you know, the experience of studying the past. I mean, one of the funny things I found in doing this project is I kept running into my own family's past um, in doing this, um, and uh, so that was that was sort of interesting in its own right uh, that you do find out things about yourself when and you're you, working with things about other people. Yeah, you wove some connections with your stepfather, and I think Tolstoy, and uh, in, uh, in the the end section of your book, which I found really beautiful and fascinating. Um, and uh, who would who would play you? Who would play me? Um, <laughs> um, Angelina Jolie. Yeah. Oh, uh, <laughs> I like that. Um, folks, we have come to the end of the show. Uh, thank you, Bev, for being such a fun guest. Read the book. Please read this book. <laughs> it is fascinating. Uh, until the next one, I wish you all days filled with justice and with love and happy Thanksgiving for those of you who celebrate it.